Well, I'm not privy to the kind of craziness you've had here at Christ Church Oakbrook these last 50 years. But I bet the church in Corinth can even give your church a run for its crazy money. The Corinthian church is a piece of work. The headlines are filled with power plays and leadership shenanigans. There's chest thumping and arm wrestling. They just can't get along. There is not a single season without some drama. There's always something. The nouveau riche are convinced that they are better than everyone else just because they have more money in the bank. Others are so high in themselves that they look down on everyone else from their milieu. This is the way they roll. In this church in Corinth, there's also the sisterhood of traveling smarty pants. They are convinced that they have it all figured out because they are so edumacated. Every church always has a group of those. Now, if this is not enough, sprinkle in for good measure a couple of juicy heresies about the resurrection. Some didn't believe it happened, actually. Some raunchy behavior that's not fit for print. And there's partisan politics. Some people love Peter. And there's those who love Apollos because he, of course, is bold and his rhetorical prowess is noteworthy. When Paul is compared to these powerful, eloquent speakers, Paul just doesn't cut it. Uh, Paul is neither impressive nor polished. He's just not with it enough. He's not relevant enough, not convincing enough. And, and I hate to say it, but his, his body is nothing to write home about either. Paul gets criticized for peddling the word, hawking the word. In fact, they call him idiotis. It's Greek for idiot or unskilled. Well, you get the picture, so I'll just, I'll just go ahead and say it. As far as the people in Corinth are concerned, uh, Paul is a bit of a loser. Paul bums people out. Well, now, of course, Paul is constantly under the gun. Pressure to be relevant. The pressure to be popular. A pressure to fit in, a pressure to perform, a pressure to make something, anything happen here right now. And if this rinky-dink presentation style of Paul isn't enough, his message about the word of the cross is crazy talk. As far as the people in Corinth are concerned... God does not belong on a cross. This is incomprehensible to think of a crucified God. God is supposed to be powerful, not weak. He is supposed to be high and almighty, not humiliated on a cross. The cross is not a place where you find God. And so Paul looks weak. 
He sounds lame, and his message is ludicrous. Here is the crucial question for Paul. In the midst of all this noise and chatter and static and confusion and quarreling and error in the church and outside the church, what can Paul possibly say to cut through the noise? What can Paul do and say that will get to the crux of the matter? These last seven years, my wife and I and our four kids have lived in Western Europe, in the Netherlands, in the, in the country and in the church where I grew up. I was the pastor of an international church there, which, uh, as you might know, the Netherlands is an increasingly secular country. Uh, just in one lifetime, let's say in the last 50 to 70 years or so, we've seen that our National church attendance has plummeted from about 70% of the population used to attend a church of some kind with great regularity to now in 2015, fewer than 16% of the population attends a church of any kind. In fact, if you travel in the Netherlands, you will notice that in all our cities, Uh, most of the churches are no longer being used as churches. Uh, Churches are being converted into bookstores, beautiful bookstores, but they're still no longer churches. Uh, They're being used as trampoline parks. Uh, This is a church in our hometown. Some churches are being converted into mosques, this one in Amsterdam, also into skate parks. Not to mention, the churches are now a popular venue for office parties. And they're even used for new age or adult entertainment industry conventions. Many of our Dutch church friends, or many of our Dutch friends, have never actually set foot in a church building other than to buy a book, to skate to jump on a trampoline, or to go to an office party. Now, in some of the churches that do still have services, we have found that sometimes the church members and even some of the church pastors no longer really believe in God. They call themselves Christian atheists, which mean that they, that they like the story about Jesus and all things Jesus-y, and, uh, but they really no longer believe that God is real or that he exists. And during the seven years that we were there, the question that Paul was confronted in the church of Corinth is the same question that we have had throughout our ministry there. What can we say that will cut through all that noise and chatter and confusion and error? What can we possibly say and do that will get to the crux of the matter? It seems to me this question is of utmost importance for you at Christ Church Oakbrook, especially during the year where you celebrate your 50th anniversary. And this church also, like the church in Corinth, 
And like our church in the Netherlands, you too are inundated with noise and chatter. There's confusion and error all around about what it truly means to be a Christian and what the gospel is really about. How can the crux of the matter stay central when in our culture, in this secular America, we are so completely full of ourselves? Swirling around you are these powerful and intoxicating ideas of the gospel of self-achievement. You can do all things. You are powerful. If you just try a little harder, if you are just a little smarter, you can do it all. In this culture, we worship the cult of the self in the unleashing of all its urges. And you today in 2015, as a church, also face this tremendous pressure to be relevant, to be popular to be impressive, and to make something, anything happen. So our question this morning, amidst all our chatter and confusion and static, I wonder for the next 50 years at Christ Church Oak Brook, what will be the crux? What will be the main thing? What will keep this church Christian And the gospel at the very center of everything you do. If you have your Bibles open, look again at verse 2 where Paul locates the crux, the center of his theology, the founding pillar for the Corinthian church. In verse 2 he says, For I decided to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He could not be clearer. The cross is the crux. A man born in an obscure province of the Roman Empire during the reign of the Emperor Augustus is the turning point of the ages. All his hopes pinned on this one man, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And this cross changes absolutely everything. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you. There is nothing more important. There is nothing more essential. Nothing else matters as much as this. The cross changes everything. If you were to keep reading Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, you would see the way Paul works the cross into everything. He works the cross into who he is and what he does. He works it into how the church is supposed to work. The cross is the reason for the church's existence. It is the foundation for the church's unity. But the cross is also the critique for their quarreling. The cross challenges their arrogance. And the cross 
opposes their infighting, and it even calls their sexual immorality into question. The cross changes everything. The first thing I want you to see today is the crux of the matter, and it is first of all this. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we find out what God is like. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we find out what God is like. If you want to know God, if you want to know what God is like, you must start at the cross. The cross is the starting point for our knowledge of God. The cross is the crux of the matter. We learn more about our Heavenly Father at the cursed, blood-splattered cross of Calvary than we learn about God anywhere else in all of creation. At the cross, we see the way God works in the world. We see how God gets things done, not by displays of force, or impressive and sophisticated wisdom. But God saves through an act of humiliating powerlessness. The glorious one, humiliated. The powerful one, completely gutted. And at the cross we find out God is holy. He is, in fact, so dead set against sin, so diametrically opposed to it, that he is even willing to let his son, Jesus Christ, die for your sins and mine. And at the cross, and only at the cross, I find out that my sins are not just mere foibles and flaws, but my sin is enmity and treason and animosity against my heavenly father. And if it wasn't for the cross, we wouldn't even know what was wrong with our human condition. But this is where we find out that God takes sin so seriously that he sends his son as a scapegoat, as an atoning sacrifice to take the blame and to pay the price to bear the burden so that he might deliver you body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for you Christ's righteousness and peace for you and eternal life for you. See, the cross changes everything. It is the ultimate sign of God's love. And it is how we discover what God is like. But not only do we discover what God is like at the cross, uh, we also find out who we are at the cross. First of all, at the cross of Jesus, we are humbled. We come to the end of ourselves. We can only come to the cross empty-handed, Bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, with no credit to our name, with nothing to claim, with nothing to argue for, nothing to bargain with. We must first be humbled and brought to the knowledge of our complete bankruptcy before God, before he can do anything 
with us at all. If you come to God with hands full of virtues, calendars full of religious activities, a heart filled with confidence in your own doing and your own being, God will have nothing of it. He doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. Now, I know this may sound a bit strange, but I've actually found this to be completely liberating. And this is actually why, why Paul is okay with not being the most eloquent speaker. He, he knows that he can't hold a candle to Apollos' powerful rhetoric. He knows that he's not as cool or hip or fly or up to the date enough. And somehow, Paul is okay with that. And here is why. Paulus discovered this secret, this mysterious truth of the cross. At the cross, you find out you are not what you accomplish. At the cross, you discover you are not what you own. You are not what you have. At the cross, you discover that you are not what you know. And you find out, and this is incredibly liberating, that you are also not what people say about you or people think about you. This is why Paul can say with a wry smile on his face, oh, they consider us idiotic. We are indeed the scum of the earth. At the cross, we find out who we are. Do you see how liberating this is to know that you are neither your race nor your nationality nor your gender? No, you find out who you are at the foot of the cross. At the cross, you find out that you are not defined by your sins, by your shortcomings, your faults, or your psychoses, nor are you the sum total of your greatest accomplishments. The cross shows you for what you really are. You have been loved by God. And he has laid down the life of his son for you. And that is who you are. And I I know this is all a bit strange and it doesn't sound that powerful or relevant or impressive. This is not reasonable. It is lunacy. It is folly. It is far-fetchedness. The cross is not what you'd expect. We, we don't even think religion is supposed to work this way. We think religion works when we prove ourselves and we have something to say for ourselves and when we justify our own existence. But the cross throws everything out of balance. The cross is surprising and unpredictable. It is not something that you and I would have ever dreamt up or thought up. It messes with everything and it pulls everything out of whack. The cross changes everything. Earlier this summer, I read the story of Hiro Onoda. Hiro Onoda was a, an intelligence officer for the Imperial Japanese Army 
and he fought in World War II. Nearing the end of World War II, Hiro Onoda went into hiding on the Lubang Island in the Philippines. Time passed, and the war was now over, but Hiro Onoda did not know that the war was over. So he was still in hiding, and he was still ready to fight. And he would stay ready to fight for 30 years. For 30 years, he continued to believe that he was at war. So Onoda continued his campaign as a Japanese holdout living in the mountains with his three soldier companions. In October of 1945, Onoda first saw a leaflet announcing Japan had surrendered. The leaflet said, the war has ended on August 15th. Come down from the mountains. Anoda mistrusted the leaflet. He figured it was allied propaganda. Toward the end of 1945, again, leaflets were dropped by another surrender order printed this time by General Tomoyuki Yamashita of the 14th Area Army. Again, Anoda's group looked very closely at the leaflet to determine whether or not it was genuine, and they decided it was not. In 1959, get this, 14 years later, in 1959, after several attempts at finding Onoda, he was officially declared dead. But finally, in 1974, now by himself, his companions dead and gone, someone located Onoda in the Philippines in his hideout and actually was able to talk to him and convince him the war was over. And yet, Onoda refused to surrender. He was waiting for orders, orders from his superior officer. So the, the Japanese army tracked down a notice commanding officer. His name was Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, and he was still alive. And so Major Taniguchi traveled to Lubang, where on March 9th, 1974, he finally met with Onoda and issued him the following orders. In accordance with the imperial command, the 14th Area Army has ceased all combat activity, and you are hereby relieved of all your military duties. Then, and only then, when he heard the verbal witness, the testimony of his commanding officer, he laid down his weapons and ceased his warfare. For 30 years, he waited. For 30 years, he hid. For 30 years, he was ready to fight. And he never knew that Japan had already lost. He was ready to fight a battle that did not need to be fought the war was already over. It was completely unnecessary. Friends, if, if you don't know the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and its power. If you don't know Jesus Christ and him crucified, you are like Hero Onoda. You are still at war, probably battling to show everyone how smart you are and how with it you are. Struggling to show the world what you are made of and that you have what it takes to be relevant and powerful and impressive and to make something happen. Maybe you're trying to prove yourself with your education. Maybe trying, you're trying to show your professional prowess or your smarts. Or you're justifying your existence by working so hard. Trying to get into people's good graces and trying to get into God's good graces. And you've been doing this for years, maybe even for 30 years. It's as if you don't know that the war is already over. The battle has already been won. Friends, the cross changes everything. It is the crux of the matter. At the cross, we find out that everything is finished. Jesus has finished it for you. You have nothing left to prove. There is nothing left to do. The battle has been won. It is over. The leaflets have been dropped from the air. The word of testimony has been spoken to you. Hear now and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for you and was raised for you for your righteousness and for your eternal life. And this is how you know who God is. And this is how you know who you are. May the Lord Jesus Christ Christ bless you these next 50 years as you keep the crux of the matter the very center of your church. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this foolish word, this folly, it is almost too good and almost too crazy to believe. But today, Lord, we have heard your word And we pray that we may rest and lean and find our comfort in the word of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our only hope and our only comfort in life and in death. Amen.